Hi, and welcome to This is True Crime, y'all. Today, we're going to be talking about Maury Troy Travis. I don't usually do this, but I'd like to start off by mentioning the scenes on the tapes that I'll be playing clips and reading transcripts of were so disturbing that the police chief at the time ordered psychological counseling for all the officers who viewed them. The clips that were released and that I will be playing aren't necessarily that bad unless you know the context and outcome of these tapes. Then it really sinks in what a human monster this guy really is. I hate, I literally despise warnings on episodes like the one I just gave you. I mean, we are talking about true crime. It literally says the name, this is true crime. It's right there in the name of the podcast. But just in case, here's your one free warning that we're talking about Maury Troy Travis, a serial killer who was absolutely remorseless, who humiliated his victims and took them from the fringes of society where they wouldn't be missed and proceeded to torture, rape, murder, and then dump their bodies on the side of the road like garbage to be found. Remember, folks, it is never a mannequin. So let's start how we normally do. We'll just dive right in, and we'll find out how Maury Travis became a serial killer. Here's the little I have found out about his background. Maury Troy Travis was born in St. Louis, Missouri on October 25th, 1965. Not so fun fact, he's a Scorpio. He spent his childhood in Carr Square Village near downtown. In April 1976, his little family buys a murder house. Well, it's not a murder house just yet. But it's a house, nonetheless, that will become infamous at 1001 Ford Avenue in Ferguson. He lives a quiet childhood there with his parents, Michael and Sandra, until their divorce in 1978. There are no reports of arson, killing animals, abuse, head injuries, or any signs that he will later become a killer. Travis graduated from McClure High School in 1985. He then served two years in the Army Reserve, working as a medical and dental assistant. He had several different jobs working for various trucking companies in the area and volunteered at a nursing home. In 1986, he attends Morris Brown College in Atlanta, which seems to be going well, but he soon develops a $300 a day crack cocaine habit. To support his habit, he holds up five shoe stores in an eight-month period in St. Louis County. Joe Spies, I'm sure I messed that up, it's S-P-I-E-S-S, who was a St. Louis County police detective, arrested Travis based on a car description and said, quote, he was respectful and quiet and reserved. He wasn't your typical type of criminal, end quote. He's incarcerated for a year awaiting trial on five counts of robbery and armed criminal action. Travis pleads guilty on January 19, 1989, 
making sure to tell the court how it was just a toy plastic gun and that he wasn't going to harm anyone. He just needed to steal money to pay for his drug habit. He told the judge he was so strung out, he didn't even remember most of the robberies. At his sentencing six months later, the judge said letters of support seemed to indicate to him that this crime spree was an aberration in character that resulted from a bad drug habit. So that just absolves him of his sins and transgressions, I suppose? I don't think so. He did remind the judge that he had gone through a drug rehab program and was clean. I got all that stuff out of my system and I'm rehabilitated, said everyone who was ever talking to a judge. Okay. One very interesting letter about his character was a one-page letter from U.S. Representative William L. Clay. Written on congressional stationery, it asked the court for leniency. I have known Mr. Travis and his family for a number of years, and I feel he is deserving of special consideration in this matter, he wrote. Since January 1988, Mr. Travis has conducted himself in such a manner as to pose no threat to society. I am pleading that he be given leniency and probation with the condition of voluntary service at a charitable community agency. This didn't affect his sentence in the least bit because four months before he was to turn 24 years old, on July 5th, 1989, he was sentenced to 15 years in prison. He serves this time from March 1989 to June 1994 at the Farmington Correctional Facility at 1012 West Columbia Street in Farmington, Missouri, south of St. Louis. While he was there, he wrote many letters, but one was to the judge who presided over his case asking the officer of the law to reconsider the sentence he had handed down. Daily and hourly, also at any given moment, I think of taking my life, Travis wrote. The conditions here are excruciatingly tormenting, to say the least. Well, I fucking hope so. Staying in my cell and crying myself to sleep most every night will not help me, but it's so very hard to believe this has happened to me. This whole situation is horrid and phantasmic. If it weren't for such a caring cellmate, I'm very sure I'd have committed suicide after my first day at this institution. He then asks that his sentence be replaced by a 120 or 180 day, quote, shock imprisonment. You, sir, are my last hope, he wrote. Please give me another chance in society. Please. This had no effect on his sentence either. It seems like the judge saw right through his bullshit. He goes on to cry and whine and moan and complain <clears throat> about the size of his living quarters. Inmate on inmate crimes such as rape and murder, the inadequate food, and the rampant drug use. Travis spent five years and three months behind bars for the robberies. He had 13 conduct violations, 
but none were particularly significant, according to a spokesman for the Missouri Department of Corrections. Travis was paroled after five years and three months behind bars. After Travis was paroled on June 14, 1994, he moved into a duplex in the 8800 block of Lucas and Hunt Road. He shared a wall in the home with a reverend, Linda Harrison, who was said there was not the tiniest hint of problems with Travis when he was living there. After his release, like many felons, as I said, he was on parole. He does well for a while, as usual, and then goes right back to his ways because he's caught in possession of drugs. His parole is revoked and he goes back to prison for a year for violations in 1998 and is released in 1999. On July 31st, 2000, the first of many of his victims would be found. The body of Mary Shields, 61, is found in East St. Louis, Illinois. Police believe she is the first victim of Maury Travis. He continues going in and out of prison for parole violations throughout 2000. In November, he was caught again and has been put back in jail. How many times can Maury Travis be let out after being on parole and being found with hard drugs? And the answer, my friends, is at least four that I can tell. He's released from prison in March 2001 and is back cruising the East St. Louis Red Light District in no time. Bodies of sex workers began turning up across Missouri and Illinois, discarded like garbage. In April 2001, Alicia Greenwade's body was found in a Washington park in East St. Louis, Illinois. Immediately, it was deemed a homicide. The police could see small linear ligature marks that were found on her wrists and ankles that indicated she had been tied up. The detectives had little to go on besides a tire impression left at the scene. The tire impression was examined and was determined it belonged to a Bridgestone Potenza tire. Alicia was a known sex worker, and the only clue the police had was a solitary tire impression. With no vehicle to match it to, they were at a standstill, and the case quickly goes cold. Only days later, police find more bodies. All victims found out in the open, dumped on the side of the roadway, and believed to be posed. All the women were found nude or partially nude. Most had ligature marks and duct tape residue on their bodies. The killer didn't care if they were found. On May 23, 2001, Betty James' body is discovered. She has ligature marks and residue on her mouth and wrists from what was believed to be duct tape. Betty James' dump site yielded very little clues, but on her body, y'all, on her body, on her leg, investigators made a gruesome discovery, a partial tire track. You can see it very clearly in the pictures. 
This guy raped, tortured, murdered her, dumped her body, and then peeled out on it. He literally left a tire impression clear as day on her body. Unbelievable. The tire was determined to be a BF Goodrich, which was found at another crime scene, which meant the same killer had been at both scenes and had unique mismatched tires. On May 15, 2001, the body of Teresa Wilson is found in West Alton. A 36-year-old female sex worker was found strangled by the roadside. More bodies kept turning up around St. Louis and East St. Louis, and a pattern quickly emerged. The police were putting it together that all these sex workers, who had all been bound, beaten, strangled, and discarded so easily and left out in the open, had to be the work of one killer. Unfortunately, most of the victims had no family, lived on the streets, and weren't ever reported missing. Their lives snuffed out by a monster stalking the late-night streets of East St. Louis. On June 29, 2001, the body of Verona Thompson, 36, is found in West Alton, just 16 feet from Wilson's body. In August 25, 2001, the body of Yvonne Cruz, is found in East St. Louis. She is also a sex worker and 50 years old. However, at this crime scene, police found DNA in her body. Then, on October 8, 2001, the body of Brenda Beasley, 33 years old, is found in East St. Louis. Police have found DNA in semen found in her as well. They tested these two DNA samples found in the women against each other and found that it was the same perpetrator. Eventually, all these counties and jurisdictions came together after sending memos and feelers out to other agencies to see if they had any unsolved murders that were similar. They soon discovered there was a serial killer on the loose in East St. Louis. After this, the FBI quickly become involved, and one of the agents requests an FBI profile for the offender. This profiler from Quantico quickly determined that this would be difficult to solve, mostly because it was transactional, money in exchange for sex, and that's how they were picked up. Finding a connection to tie the women to this killer was not going to be easy. The killer was using his anonymity to hide his own identity by choosing these victims, throwaways, drug addicts, and sex workers. He was making sure his targets wouldn't be missed and most likely wouldn't be identified or reported missing by loved ones. The profiler did say that most serial killers' victims are their own race, and he believed the unidentified subject or unsub was a middle-aged black male. Six months after the first murder, the crimes suddenly stopped. Police began to think he was either dead 
in jail, or just moved on to a different city or state entirely. The police had 10 bodies lined up and still a serial killer on the loose. That's when everything changed. A reporter for the St. Louis Dispatch wrote a story about Teresa Wilson. It was printed on May 19th. Her body was found nude and police had no idea who she was. Her eventual identity was discovered because of a dental implant. Bill wrote a heartfelt piece on her life and really humanized her. Up until this point, many people who weren't sex workers weren't concerned about a serial killer who was only killing prostitutes. They could care less. It wasn't going to affect them in any way, shape, or form. Bill wanted to keep her memory alive and try to get justice for the slain women who deserved a name. Many at this point had not been identified, and to this day, several remain as Jane Doe's. Five days after the article hit the newspaper stands, Bill got quite the piece of fan mail. The envelope was an ugly, stained brown that wasn't very descript. It did have an unusual upside-down postage stamp in the corner. The return address read, I Thraldom, New York, New York, 10012. And this letter reads as follows. Dear Bill, nice sob story about Teresa Wilson. Write one about Greenwade. Write a good one and I'll tell you where many others are to prove I'm real. Here's directions to number 17. Search in a 50-yard radius from the X. Put the story in the Sunday paper like the last. There was no signature and nothing else on the piece of paper except for a really ugly, like, it looks like a bouquet or maybe some grapes. I don't know. It's this ugly little stationery that seems like in itself would be a clue. At first, the reporter thought it was some kind of sick joke. Someone, he said, was yanking his chain. I mean, who would send a letter and actually confess to a murder no one knew about and show a map with a crude X on it marking where the body should be? He soon realized this was a serious matter and turned the letter over to the police. They immediately examined the note, envelope, and map. As stated, the postage stamp was upside down. The name I Thraldom was either in reference to a BDSM website called ithraldom.com, but the definition of the word thraldom, only spelled with one L, is said to be the state of being under the control of another person. Synonyms are slavery and bondage, subjugation, and serfdom, bonded labor or servitude. The New York part on the address was definitely a lie. It was postmarked from St. Louis. The letter was in a bright red font, but didn't yield many clues besides the obvious. The killer was proving it was him and not an imposter. He wanted his five minutes of fame, but the map was definitely the most intriguing part. The killer had downloaded, printed it, and cut off the borders showing the URL on his map of death. 
He thought cutting off the border and URL would keep him safe from being found out, but as you're going to see, he was dead-ass wrong. After all, he was trying to get credit for his crimes and his attention, but not get caught. The map showed a remote area on Highway 67 that intersected with St. Charles Street and had an X near the intersection. Police went to the spot on the map and did discover human remains. The FBI examined the map and went to find out where all this came from. There was a person assigned to the insane task of trying to find this exact map on the internet. And guess what? He did just that. He literally searched every map on the internet of that location and that intersection and compared it to the map the killer had sent. It took hours upon hours, but they finally found the exact map. It was on a website called Expedia.com. Even the size of the map when downloaded and printed matched exactly to the one sent to the reporter. Expedia said that Microsoft provided their maps for use on the site and that it was proprietary, being the only site that used that map. The FBI wanted to know every user who accessed that particular map between May 19th, when Bill's article was published, and May 21st, the postmark date of the letter. Microsoft was served with a subpoena for this information. They obliged and told the FBI that only one user had downloaded this map in that time frame they were asking about. And this user's MSN screen name was MSN slash Maury Travis. The user had downloaded the map at 7.36 Central Time on May 20th, the day before it was sent. Now to determine this scumbag's location. They found the IP address associated with that username, 65.227.106.78. In case you wanted to know, because of course I wanted to know, the exact IP address that was used. So the FBI got his location by reversing the IP address or something to that effect. Much like Nick from True Crime Garage, I did not go to school for computer. But I'm told it is the same kind of tool that the FBI uses when tracking locations for users who distribute child pornography. The FBI soon ran surveillance on the address associated with the IP. It was 1001 Ford Drive in Ferguson, a small house in a quiet middle-class suburb that was owned by a 55-year-old woman with no prior record. This woman was Maury Travis's mother. They surveilled the house and soon found out that one Maury Troy Travis lived there. They wanted to get him into custody immediately and applied for a search warrant. The search warrant was granted and at 7 a.m. on Friday, June 7th, Maury Troy Travis got a knock on his door. Police knocked on the door for several minutes before an annoyed and disgruntled Travis and his girlfriend answered the door. He appeared in his underwear, groggy and agitated. He wasn't a large man, not a bodybuilder. To the detectives, he seemed wiry, but still strong. 
a very normal, average type of guy, St. Louis homicide detective Roy Douglas remembers, and intelligent. It's seven in the morning, Travis grumbled as he met them at the door. Why are you here so early? You know why we're here, they told him. Travis nodded and got dressed quickly to join the police in the living room on sofas arranged in what police would later call a conversation pit around a coffee table. It was, they said, a very normal living room in a very normal house. Detective Sachs, a 42-year-old, 22-year veteran of the St. Louis Police Department and an FBI profiler, spoke with Travis as two other investigators on the case waited nearby. As they talked, Travis's calico cat strolled from room to room, moving from one visitor to the next. Each time one of the investigators reached down to pet the animal, Travis stiffened and moved to the edge of his seat. He didn't appreciate it at all. At one point, Travis even picked up the cat, sat it next to him, out of the reach of the investigators. There they sat for the next two hours, investigators trying to engage Travis in small talk, and Travis deflecting questions one by one. It was almost as if Travis was parroting the investigators. Where did you grow up? they asked. Where did you grow up? Travis asked. What did you do as a child? they asked. Nothing. Went to school. What did you do? He kept trying to redirect everything. Every question, Sachs would say. He wanted to be in complete control. During this two-hour chat in Travis's house, the interesting point was that Travis never once asked why police had come and why they were sitting in his house. He never admitted anything, but he also never denied anything either. Travis was more interested in how they had been able to find him. He wanted to know what led us here, how we knew that he was the guy, said Sachs. Finally, investigators told him about the map. He had had a problem when he downloaded the map, they told him. Travis cursed. Fucking computer, he said. Damned internet. Eventually, investigators got Travis outside and into a police car where they continued to talk with him. He agreed to accompany them downtown to the police headquarters. Sachs would sit with Travis in an interrogation room for the next three hours until almost 2 p.m., trying to somehow work his way into Travis's mind, trying to understand what had made him who he was. We need you to help us, Sachs implored him. We need closure for the families of the victims. Sachs can still remember the creepy fucking sneer that crept across Travis's face. Huh. Victims, Travis replied. The message felt cold, clear, and calculated. Sachs asked him about girlfriends. Yes, Travis said he had dated. He asked him about prostitutes. Yes, Travis said, he had paid for prostitutes. Had he been abused as a child, Sachs asked him. No, Travis said, how about you? At one point, Sachs said he spoke to Travis about the debate over whether the kind of crimes Travis committed were inherent or learned behaviors. 
So nature versus nurture, basically. He said, I would never understand. He said he was born like this. He said he'd been like this since he could remember. Police said that during their interview, Travis seemed to show genuine affection and concern for only one person, his mother, who he seemed very fond of, Sachs said. But throughout the nearly eight hours of questioning, police said they never saw any remorse or any feelings of guilt. Absolutely none, Sachs said. Evidence against Travis mounted throughout the day. He would often nervously tap his fingers on the table. You know what we found in your basement, police told him. Yeah, I knew you'd find it, Travis said. As Maury Travis sat in the interrogation room, police and forensic technicians were tearing his home apart, going through his computer and finding any and all evidence to prove he was the killer of multiple sex workers in two states. What the police would find would shock many veteran officers. There was a collection of truly horrific amateur movies and snuff tapes made by Travis. Here we're going to talk about a brief list of things that they found. Number one, the computer and printer he used for the map and letter. Two, women's underwear, wigs, shoes, clothes, a stun gun, and Maury Travis's home movies. Most of the videos that they found were him and sex workers smoking crack and having sex. But one of the tapes labeled, quote, your wedding day, end quote, shows Travis torturing, abusing, and raping different women. Part of that tape actually shows Travis killing Cassandra Walker. In the video, Walker is chained to a large brown wooden support beam that sits in the middle of the basement. Her legs and hands are restrained behind her with shackles. Travis then wraps a belt around her neck and strangles her. You can see this video in numerous places on the internet. It shows her dead body lying on the floor while he walks around and says stupid fucking shit, which I'll play for you right now. This is first kill number one. First kill was 19 years old. Name, I don't First kill was nice. In case you didn't hear the audio correctly, he says, this is first kill, number one. First kill was 19 years old. Name, I don't know, and I don't give a fuck. First kill was nice. Now, I know I'm making light of this guy being a fucking douchebag, but it is creepy and emotionless, and he literally just murdered someone in cold blood. As it turns out, Travis loved to psychologically and physically torture his victims. He would gag them and wrap masking tape around their faces and heads. He would chastise them for getting into a car with strangers. He would talk about their children. This man was ruthless. I'll say something to your kids. <laughs> Mom, I'm sorry. Who raising your kids? Me and my mom and dad. You ain't raising shit. 
You going to in your back smoking crack. You ain't going home tomorrow. I'm going to keep you about a week. The gruesome videotapes of bondage and torture were found were hard for investigators to watch, but they needed to identify four unknown women on the tapes. Many women, all presumed to be dead, were forced to state their names on camera. Two remained unidentified because police believe the women gave their street names and not their actual birth names. One woman on the tape was identified immediately as Betty James. And there was more evidence besides these disgusting tapes. Forensic technicians would discover blood on the ceilings, walls, carpet, and furniture. And I mean covered. It was a gruesome scene. One awful thing that they uncovered was that after every murder and victim bled out on his walls, Maury Travis would just paint over it in order to hide the evidence. Judging from the blood in between the coats of paint, he would kill, paint, kill, paint. The filing cabinet next to his computer contained what police referred to as a knapsack, but I'm going to call it what it is. It is a kill kit. It contains everything a psycho serial killer would need to subdue his victims. Duct tape, ligatures, handcuffs, straps, and pantyhose he used as gloves and other terrifying items of torture. Blood samples from the basement showed the blood spatter and deep stains on the carpet and furniture were a mix of blood from six different victims. Six. Police asked his girlfriend if she knew about the basement, which was a makeshift torture chamber. She said she wasn't allowed in the basement and had never been down there. On his computer, he had several rough drafts of the letter on the hard drive that he sent to the reporter. Two cars were found in his driveway. Tires on one matched the tracks found on the victim and at the crime scenes. One of the most distressing things they found, besides the tapes, bloodstains, copious amount of damning evidence, was a drawing, a hand-drawn diagram of a new kind of hell for these women. Maury Travis's personal DIY home renovation dreams, a basement torture chamber. This drawing can be seen online. It shows an eight by eight room where there are two inner chambers complete with metal cell doors. The two foot by six foot double chambers in the room were there to hold his captives. The map was complete with dimensions, places where tie downs would go and pricing for the backhoes and such showing that he wanted to keep these women for much longer to prolong his torture. On his jolly little honeydew list and things that he wanted to buy, he had searched for handcuffs, more leg irons, more tie-downs, a hooded mask. I mean, that is fucking terrifying. He searched for ways to kidnap larger women too, apparently, including mace and chloroform to knock them out. 
Several times, the investigators told Travis what they had found. Travis would drop his head and mutter repeatedly. Police started talking to his neighbors. A neighbor in Ferguson described Maury Travis as quiet and a respectful boy who sometimes mowed her lawn without being asked and even showed her how to use an electric hedge trimmer. She knew him by his nickname, Toby, and said he was a pleasant child with a soft heart. I don't believe he could kill a fly, she said. Well, I mean, she was pretty fucking wrong on that matter, so... Maury Travis would just mutter things like, I'm toast, I'm toast, you know, uh, that damn computer. Sachs questioned Travis for nearly eight hours before giving way to Douglas and Walker, who immediately began a more direct and in-your-face confrontational interview that had produced results with past suspects. But just 19 minutes into the interview with Douglas and Walker, Police said Travis asked for an attorney and the interview was stopped. I am not going back to prison, Travis told his interrogators. I am not going back. So I guess their direct interrogation didn't work, considering he had talked to the other officers for eight hours and then 19 minutes into this, he decides, nah, not not gonna do it. Okay. Three days later, without being questioned again by police, Maury Travis was dead. A pillowcase over his head, his hands tied behind his back, and a noose around his neck. And if you are thinking what I'm thinking, and I know you are, that that sounds very fucking suspicious, you are correct. Yes, yes it does. But, apparently... The St. Louis County Medical Examiner says that it was odd, but a suicide nonetheless. Apparently, he placed the noose around his neck, the bag over his head, stood on a toilet, then tied his hands behind his back. Then he jumps from the toilet to his death. Maury Travis was on suicide watch. However, the guards who were supposed to keep watch over him were supposed to check on him every 15 minutes. And at this time, the guards failed to do their job and missed two 15-minute check-ins. That's 30 minutes. During that 30 minutes, Travis executed his plan so that he would not go back to prison and would never be held accountable for his crimes. Police have attributed Maury Travis to at least 13 victims found. Cassandra Walker, age 19. Alicia Greenway, age 34. Teresa Wilson, age 36. Betty James, age 46. Verona Thompson, age 36. Yvonne Cruz, age 50. Brenda Beasley, age 33 and several unidentified victims, four at least, in Mascuda, Illinois, Highland, Illinois, Columbia, Illinois, and West Alton, Missouri. There was also one lone survivor that was thought to be his victim. In April of 2001, a woman was found in East St. Louis who'd barely survived a brutal attack from an unknown assailant. 
She was injured and had severe brain damage, which put her into a nursing home at 44 years old. She was beaten within an inch of her life. She's just one of many of Travis's victims who will never get the justice they deserve because this coward took his own life instead of facing what he had done. St. Louis police are confident that Maury Travis was the killer and the person responsible for these murders. Whether or not his boast of 17 victims was accurate, they believe he probably killed more than the 12 they had identified so far. Who are these other women and where are they, said the chief. There's some families out there that have lost a loved one and they'll always be uncertain of what happened to them. Detectives in the St. Louis Police Department are looking for any information that could help them find more or identify Maury Travis's victims. If you have any information that would help the investigation, please call 314-444-5371. Thank you for listening to another episode of This is True Crime, y'all. If you could rate me, give me five stars, share my podcast and get it out there, any help would be greatly appreciated. And I look forward to telling you the next story.